The Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. The Deputy Secretary of State is one of the most critical posts in the department. As we advance the United States leadership and address multiple challenges and crises around the world, the State Department's role is more important than ever. We must elevate our ability to compete with China while establishing strategic lines of coordination. Ukraine remains under assault almost two years after Putin's illegal invasion. And exactly two months ago, Hamas terrorists launched a brutal attack on Israel. This conflict endangers the security of the entire region and has made it already acute humanitarian situation in Gaza much worse. These and other challenges require strategic, consistent, and creative diplomacy. That is why it is critical that we fill this role as quickly as we can. I believe that America's foreign policy to serve our national interests, it must be driven by our values, promoting democracy and good governance, fighting corruption, defending human rights. These must be at the core of our agenda as we engage in the global stage. Mr. Campbell, if confirmed, I hope you will work to make sure that these values are front and center. I have enormous respect for the work of our diplomats and civil servants that they do every day. We must make sure the department has the support and resources it needs to advance U.S. interests and keep crisis from expanding. Food insecurity, severe natural disasters, and extreme heat make worse by climate crisis multiply the threats facing the globe. Humanitarian crises have devastated Haiti, Burma, Syria, Yemen, and Sudan. In Africa, there have been seven coups in the Sahel and West Africa in the past three years, in addition to coups in Sudan and Gambon. Instability now stretches across the continent from the Red Sea to the Atlantic. In our hemisphere, illicit fentanyl trafficking and irregular migration affect cities and communities in nearly every state in America. The demise of democratic governance and widespread human rights abuses in Venezuela and Haiti require increased attention. At the same time, the United States must not only respond to global crises, but must lead with a proactive agenda. Whether it is nurturing our alliance with our NATO and G7 partners, promoting an agenda for economic growth, advancing solutions to climate change, or improving global health. The Department of State must be operating at full capacity to tackle these challenges. That means keeping morale up while upholding the traditions of providing space for constructive dissent within the department. It means fully staffing our mission in Africa and making sure ambassadorial nominees have the relevant regional experience to lead effectively. It means being ambitious and consistent with our resourcing. It means making sure the department makes notable progress on diversity, equity, and inclusion from every bureau to every post. It means getting our diplomats and civil servants the training and skills to address climate, global health, cyber, economics, and the 21st century security challenges. Mr. Campbell, there is no shortage of challenges awaiting you in this post. So I want to thank you for your willingness to serve. I want to thank your family for supporting you in this challenge. And I look forward to hearing your plans for carrying out this role, if confirmed, and helping lead the department to confront the challenges ahead. With that, I yield to the distinguished ranking member, Senator Rich. Well, uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman um, and uh, Dr. Campbell. Glad to have you here today, and thanks for uh, being willing to do this job. Over the past uh, last few years, the geostrategic landscape has shifted, 
and the United States has lacked the policies necessary to respond to the emerging threats and challenges. We need strong leadership that addresses these global challenges rather than focus on promoting policies that appeal to certain domestic audiences. Between Russia's ongoing invasion of Ukraine, China's bid to dominate the Indo-Pacific and exert malign influence and efforts to undermine the very existence of our close ally Israel, the threats to the U.S. interests and our credibility are dangerously high. I've been particularly concerned by states' lack of focus on China, its disorganized efforts to stand up uh, new embassies in the Pacific, and lack of a robust support to our allies in the region. With almost 30 years of experience in Indo-Pacific, I want to hear from you how you plan to address our greatest challenge, China. I believe the President's current policy is headed in the wrong direction. The administration assures us it is not falling into the traps of the past, but the economic relationships cannot stabilize all of U.S.-China relations. Meanwhile, China continues to expand its influence throughout the global south, including uh, in our own hemisphere. The recent focus at the APEC summit on establishing working groups with China allows them to weaponize against us. Beijing wants, us to tie, Beijing wants to tie us up in these mechanisms and use them to constrain our policies, as we've seen time and time again. On the military-to-military -military front, the administration claims, and maybe even believes, talks will help avoid miscalculation. If we were dealing uh, with a good-faith actor, that should be true, but we aren't. Just days after China agreed to these talks, and everybody happily shook hands, it conducted aggressive acts at sea and in air, risking the lives of U.S. Uh, and allied sailors. Uh, this, uh, this effort is off to a bad start, and I'm uh, concerned that they had no, uh, they have, China has uh, uh, no interest in uh, doing what should be done. Treatment of U.S. diplomats in China should be another warning sign. During COVID, China exposed U.S. personnel and their families to extreme, unsafe, and degrading testing and treatment protocols, and senior department leadership allowed such treatment to persist. That's unacceptable. I want your commitment that you will work with other department leaders to investigate what happened and pursue accountability. Uh, and after the most recent climate summit, I'm worried the department will now support Chinese uh, cooperation, so-called cooperation on climate, at the sub-national level. This is really dangerous. The administration is giving China a legitimate entry point to peddle its influence in U.S. cities in ways that undermine our national policy. Why would the department support Chinese efforts to undermine our system of governance? While, you're, uh, while you are an Asia expert, you must also provide leadership on other policy matters in the world. In Europe, uh, we need to maintain support for Ukraine while ensuring proper and strict oversight of taxpayer dollars. We've been doing that, but vigilance is, promise, is, uh, is most important. Ukraine is fully capable of achieving victory, but until the administration gets over its fear of giving them what they need to win, its future and that of Europe will remain at risk. U.S. credibility among our allies in Asia is dependent on our success in Europe. Secretary Blinken's comments about China playing a role in peace discussions in Ukraine are very troubling. China must not and should not be allowed to, to use Ukraine as a way to anchor itself in European security issues because of some misguided belief that it can calm Russia down. The United States also needs to ensure there is a well-thought-out plan for Ukraine's reconstruction and supports its path to self-sufficiency and protects its economy from foreign influence. 
I support the Secretary's comment in October, stating that the U.S. needs legal authorities to seize southern sovereign Russian assets in the U.S. for Ukraine reconstruction. My bill, the partisan, uh, bipartisan, bicameral Repo Act, will provide these authorities. I hope to work with you and with the chairman to get this bill passed quickly and get these authorities in place. In the Middle East, the Hamas attacks against Israel and Iran's uh, undeterred attacks against our troops are a clear signal that this administration's Iran policy continues to fail. The administration's fruitless nuclear negotiations, unfreezing of funds, weak oil sanctions enforcement, and failure to maintain regional deterrence have uh, emboldened Iran and Iran's terror proxies. U.S. credibility is weakened. It is a time for the U.S. to dramatically change course and firmly respond to restore deterrence. We must return to a policy of economic isolation for Iran and deny the regime uh, resources to support regional terrorism, especially Chinese uh, purchases of Iranian oil. I have been deeply troubled by the efforts by the administration to, to provide billions of dollars of fresh cash uh, to the Iranians. I look forward to hearing your thoughts on all of these important issues. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, Senator Risch. Uh, our guest today is the is Kirk Campbell, who is the president's nominee for Deputy Secretary of State. Kirk Campbell currently serves as Deputy Assistant to the President and Coordinator for the Indo-Pacific Affairs at, on the National Security Council. From 2009 to 2013, Mr. Campbell served as the Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia and Pacific Affairs. Earlier, he was CEO and co-founder of the Center for New American Security and concurrently served as the director of the Aspen Strategy Group and chairman of the editorial board of the Washington Quarterly. Among the other positions he's held during his distinguished career, Mr. Campbell uh, served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Asia and Pacific Affairs, served both Defense and State Department in similar roles, White House Fellow at the Treasury Department and as Director of the Democracy Office at the National Security Council during the Clinton administration. Mr. Campbell was an assistant associate professor of public policy at the Harvard John F. Kennedy School of Government and served in the U.S. Navy Reserves. Once again, we thank you for your willingness to serve. Your entire statement will be made part of the record. We'd ask that you try to summarize your record in about five minutes so we can have a dialogue with the members of the committee. That's great. <clears throat> thank you very much, uh, Chairman Cardin, uh, Ranking Minority Rish. I appreciate your comments. I took careful note. Uh, I would submit my full uh, uh, statement for the record today. I, I do want to just begin with a few thank yous, if I might. Um, during this process, some of this was new to me. I had a chance to spend quite a bit of time with the committees, uh, both the majority and minority committee. I want to thank Damian Murphy. I want to thank Chris Socha. Not only were these important for me, I actually learned a lot. I found it incredibly valuable to hear their perspectives. I do want to promise not only will I commit to work closely with you, but I'm going to work closely with the committees. I know their role. I know what they've done. And I appreciated the time they've taken with me over the course of the last couple of weeks. I also just want to say you have to say thank you to folks who helped you get here. The number of hours that people behind me spent supporting me is incredible. I just want to say thanks to Nas and to Roy, our two wonderful 
colleagues at the State Department who helped me with this, and also on my team at the White House, Pat Shiloh, Hannah Suh, and Nick DeParl, all of whom put enormous efforts in trying to make me prepared for today, and that's no small task. Before you start your testimony, um, I know two of our colleagues wanted to give some introductory remarks. So sure, thank first, you. let me recognize Senator Duckworth. Mr. Chairman, thank you for this opportunity to introduce Dr. Kurt Campbell, President Biden's nominee to serve as Deputy Secretary of State. In the words of Secretary Blinken, Kurt, and I quote, Kurt is one of our nation's leading diplomats and strategists, a visionary policymaker, and a renowned leader whose nomination comes at a critical inflection point for our world and America's role in it. Kurt is no stranger to public service. For the past two years, he has served as senior advisor to the president and coordinator for Indo-Pacific Affairs at the National Security Council and as Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian Affairs in the Obama-Biden administration, he focused America's strategic attention and investment towards the Indo-Pacific, a region increasingly vital for our national security and prosperity. I am here today introducing him because I have full confidence in his ability to steer the Department of State through a time of significant global challenges and opportunities with creativity, commitment, and dedication to serving our country and one of its most important institutions. In his, curtain role, in his current role, Kurt has had the pleasure, and I'm sure he would describe it that way in his most gracious and diplomatic uh, terms, of hearing my many opinions and ideas. In our numerous conversations, I have been frank in my assessment of our policy in the Indo-Pacific, like when I've told him that the United States had neglected too many Southeast Asian partnerships that should be among our closest. He has listened, even when my feedback has been critical. He has been open to learn and try new things, and he has been creative in his problem solving. And more than that, he's brought energy to his role in the NSC with incredibly impactful actions, from AUKUS to our enhanced relationships with the Pacific Islands, making grueling uh, multi-day journeys to only to be on the ground for a few hours in far-flung uh, island-hopping locations that produce immediate results for our national security. That makes a real lasting difference for the security of our nation. Dr. Campbell has had deep experience outside of government as well. He has served as CEO and co-founder of the Center for a New American Security, as has already been mentioned, director of the Aspen Strategy Group, chairman of the editorial board of the Washington Quarterly, in addition to his time as founding chairman and chief executive officer of the Asia Group. Somehow, on top of all of this, he has found time to author or edit 10 books. All I can say is he must have an enormously patient family uh, putting up with his schedule, and I th want to thank his family uh, uh, who are here today for, for their service to our nation as well. And finally, Kurt is a veteran of the United States Navy. Uh, I couldn't be more proud as a fellow vet uh, to have him uh, uh, and his service to our government. I am confident that Dr. Campbell will bring these myriad experiences to bear as Deputy Secretary of State, along with his many relationships, formidable intellect, and considerably, considerable drive, all for the good of the department and our nation. I look forward to supporting his nomination, which comes at a critical time and could not be more well-deserved and much needed. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Haggerty. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I believe that the chairman and ranking member did an excellent job of conveying the many challenges that confront us from a diplomatic standpoint as a nation. And it's for that reason I couldn't be more pleased than to see Dr. Campbell sitting at this chair as our nominee for this critical post. Dr. Campbell is someone that I've known for more than 30 years. 
We are uh, both alumni of a program called White House Fellowship, as is his lovely wife, Lael. Obviously, that program has had an incredible impact on their lives and careers, as it has on mine. And it's been a, a great benefit for me to have had the opportunity to see Kurt's career evolve over the past 30 years' time. We both have a shared interest and love for the Indo-Pacific region. When I served as U.S. Ambassador to Japan, I called on Kurt many times. I found our conversations when I was in that role to be most helpful, most insightful. And again, I'm delighted to see Kurt here in this position because the Indo-Pacific region is going to play a critical role in our world's future. It's home to 60% of the world's population, 50% of the world's GDP. And having someone with Kurt's unique insight and capability and expertise in that region, I think is going to prove invaluable to us. Something even more important, though, are his character traits and skills. Kurt has a military background, as, as Senator Duckworth mentioned. Uh, his leadership skills are going to be critical, taking the managerial and operational challenges that he has, uh, running a 70,000-person operation scattered all ends of the planet. So I'm pleased to see someone with your background, Kurt, who has real experience in the State Department, real experience at the National Security Council, in the Department of Defense, and in the private sector. Uh, you also have demonstrated your diplomatic skills here today by having two members of this committee introduce you. My hat's off. It's the first time I've seen that. My hat's off to you there. Uh, I'm looking forward to your readiness on day one to be able to do this job. And I think my colleagues will see during the course of this hearing that we have a very competent and qualified person today. Thank you. Well, I thank Senator Duckworth and Senator Haggerty for their introductions. Uh, Dr. Campbell, you now may proceed. You've you got an extra minute of time because we're going to start the clock over again in five minutes. Thank you. I always <laughs> like that extra minute. Uh, thanks to both senators. That was very gracious and much appreciated. Um, so I really said thank you to our teams. I, I need to say a word of thanks to my wife, uh, Lel Brader, and my wonderful daughter, Coco Campbell. Coco is a sophomore in high school and is missing a test today, so she's pretending like it's a big hardship, but she's actually pretty happy to be here. Uh, my wife was in this chair not long ago uh, as she was being confirmed for vice chairman of the Federal Reserve. I was back there. At that time, I actually thought that was the hardest chair. I was incredibly nervous and anxious, but it's actually harder sitting here, so I'm here. Anyway, I want to thank them both. They're patient. They're wonderful. I have the best wife in the world. I admire her enormously. Um, so let me just say a few things as we get started. It's not lost on me the day that we're meeting. This is uh, December 7th, day that will forever live in infamy. And it is a reminder of things that we must keep in mind critically uh, in foreign policy and diplomacy. One is, the, is to be constantly vigilant about the potential for strategic surprise. Um, I, I think it would be fair to say that the United States is exerting itself intensively uh, in the Middle East and Ukraine. I believe those pursuits are necessary. Uh, they're critically important. But it is also the case, I also believe, that fundamentally our long-term interests over the remainder of this century will play out largely in the Indo-Pacific, and there is the real risk of strategic surprise. And there are countries that are testing us, looking to see if we're preoccupied. And I want to just commit to you today, if confirmed, uh, I will do everything possible working within the United States government to make sure that we are not tested and that we stand ready to respond to any challenges uh, to our power, uh, to uh, our allies in the Indo-Pacific more directly. But I will also say December 7th teaches us other things as well, um, and that is the redemptive power of 
democracy. So Senator Haggerty talked about uh, uh, the Indo-Pacific. We also share a deep love of Japan. I would contend with you that our most important ally and partner on the global stage today might be Japan. We've done a remarkable amount of things from the rubble of that. That's got to give us hope as we persevere in a variety of places around the globe. I would simply say that the thing I'm proudest of over the last several years is working with partners on this committee and elsewhere, building uh, resolute, innovative partnerships in the Pacific. I'm sure we're going to talk about AUKUS. I'm very proud of AUKUS. I'm proud of taking the Quad to the leader level, bringing the uh, the maritime democracies of Asia together. I'm proud of helping forge a stronger partnership between Japan and South Korea after decades of difficulty and challenge. I'm proud of the work I did in Vietnam and in India, countries that strategically are more aligned with us, difficult undeniably, but critically important. I'm also proud of the fact that some of the countries that are the strongest supporters of the United States in Europe today are from the Indo-Pacific. Japan, South Korea, Australia, others have stood with us to support uh, Ukraine in its difficult time. So I just want to underscore that uh, I think one of the reasons uh, I was asked to take on these responsibilities is to remind all of us of the importance of the Indo-Pacific more directly. Last couple of things, and I'll just conclude. Uh, I, I honestly, uh, I approach this with today and just in general with enormous humility. You've noted, uh, Senator Rich, this is not a job just about the Indo-Pacific. There's an enormous uh, canvas, a massive undertaking at the State Department. I think all of you have worked on the State Department's details, have authored its programs. So in many respects, I have just an enormous amount to learn. I will commit to you, I'll be as honest and straightforward as I possibly can today and in the future. But if I, know, if I don't know something, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to get back to you. And so I'll do my best to answer your questions today, and I look forward to that conversation. And then just lastly, I, I will say, uh, if confirmed, I'm going to work closely with the committee and also uh, with the staff. And the reason that I can say this with high confidence is I've already done this. I've spent an enormous amount of time with people on the Hill and on both sides of the aisle. Our best foreign policy initiatives are bipartisan, and they match the resolve of the executive and legislative branches. I've committed my career to those goals, and if I'm committed for this job, I promise to take that forward. Over to you, Senator. Thank you. Look at that. Right. At <laughs> well done. Thank you very much for your comments. We're going to start at five-minute rounds. Uh, let me just point out to the members of our committee that uh, this committee reported out the August uh, both Pillar 1 and 2. Uh, they are now included in the National Defense Authorization Act, so we're very optimistic that we're going to be moving forward with the response that we needed to do to make sure we move forward with the agreements between Australia and UK. We have questions that we asked um, that we asked you to respond either yes or no to for the committee. Uh, do you agree to appear before this committee and make official from your office available to the committee and designated staff when invited? Yes, absolutely. Do you commit to keep this committee fully and currently informed about the activities under your purview? Yes. Do you commit to engaging in meaningful consultation while policies are being developed, not just providing notification after the fact? Yes. 
Do you commit to promptly responding to requests for briefings and information requested by the committee and its designated staff? Yes, I do, Senator. Four for four. That was a good start. Uh, now we'll start the five-minute round. So let me ask you, um, I want to ask you one question about the normalization talks between Israel and its neighbors. I uh, joined a group of 10 senators that visited the Middle East shortly after Hamas's horrific attacks on October 7th. We were there to show our support for Israel, but we stopped at Saudi Arabia to try to keep on track the normalization conversations that were taking place between the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and Israel and the United States. Uh, since that time and during that time, it became very clear to us that one of Hamas's goals in its attack against Israel was to derail the normalization talks between Israel and its neighbors. So my question to you, if confirmed, how will you work to make sure that those talks are kept on track and not derailed as a result of the conflict that's taking place in the Middle East? Well, thank you, Chairman. Let me just say that um, I think the initiatives that began in the Trump administration to help bridge the diplomatic isolation that Israel has experienced are very important, and I think the Biden administration has sought to build on those. And you rightly point out that we were at a very delicate stage in our diplomacy between Israel uh, and Saudi Arabia and other countries as well, and also looking at linking up uh, various uh, industrial energy and transportation lines uh, with um, uh, India and other countries. Um, the October 7th attacks have been devastating and obviously the region is now engulfed in anxiety associated with the ongoing conflict. I will say that I think we can be uh, carefully encouraged by some of the discussions that we've had to date that indicate that there still is a willingness among the key players to uh, restart this process and continue it. And I believe that ultimately our goal will be to entrench Israel diplomatically in the region. I believe that is in our best interests. I also believe it is in the best interests of the countries that we work with closely uh, in the Gulf, including Saudi Arabia. Uh, I think it is understandable that at this moment some of those discussions are quiet and they are difficult. Uh, chairman, but I believe that we must keep that dialogue going and also work towards a situation in which once this terrible conflict is resolved that we can work with those partners to try to reassemble uh, a Middle East at peace and with uh, more stable structures. I, uh, in my opening statement uh, and in our private conversations, I told you about my priorities to make sure that we conduct our foreign policy based upon our values. Uh, and that's what President Biden has said. Um, diversity, equity, inclusion is part of our values. Um, the department has a strategic plan, an equity action plan in regards to diversity, equity, inclusion. It's part of our values that we promote for other countries to do. And yet, when we look at the recruitment and retention at the State Department, it has not always been the showcase of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So do we have your commitment as to how you will embrace the need for our State Department to not only espouse these values globally, but to demonstrate through its own internal actions? 
Um, you do, Senator, and I would just go beyond that as well. I know you and others have been involved in conversations and how best to think about modernizing and helping make sure that the State Department is able to meet the modern challenges of diplomacy, how to improve retention, how to work with recruitment, how to make sure that our diplomatic core reflects not only our values but our diversity. Um, I just want to commit to you that I know that that legislation is still in the process of uh, internal discussion. I will commit to you to work with that. I do believe that these efforts uh, are important and it's critical that the State Department keep up with modern matters of innovation bureaucratically, strategically, given the challenges that we're facing. And my last question deals with Iran. Iran is helping Russia in its war against Ukraine. Iran is the facilitator for the terrorist operations in the Middle East, including Hamas and its attack against Israel, the Hezbollah, the Houthis, the militias in Syria and Iraq. How do you see Iran's threat against America's national security? And what steps do you think we need to take? Look, Senator, I, I think I join with all of you is that I'm quite concerned by a wide array uh, of Iranian, Iranian activities. We've seen provocative support to uh, groups around the Middle East. I've been uh, very personally concerned by Iranian support for Russia in Ukraine. Uh, I think, as we heard from Senator Risch, they are increasingly aligning themselves, aligning themselves with China more directly. I think it probably every level, Iran is uh, our strategic nemesis. Uh, they are uh, seeking to undermine American purpose in the region, and we must contest that purposely across the board. Senator Risch. Mr. Chairman, I'm going to ask you, I don't usually do this, but I'm going to read you some questions that I'd like a direct yes or no answer to, and then I've got I'll give you a chance on when we get uh, some other questions to, to talk a little bit about. First of all, uh, one of the things uh, I want to ask you on the record, will you pledge to provide direct oversight of the Department of State's implementation of AUKUS? Absolutely, yes. Uh, will you commit to pursuing a thorough investigation into the decisions made by the State Department from uh, 2020 onwards that enabled China to subject U.S. diplomats to violations uh, of their privileges and immunities. Senator Rich, I will, and I must thank you. I've read the letters that you've sent carefully, and I uh, fully intend to do so. I appreciate that. Uh, will you work to remove barriers to U.S. agencies supporting natural gas over Chinese coal? Uh, I believe natural gas plays a critical role as a transitional fuel. I've worked closely with this committee and others to ensure that that is the case, particularly in the Indo-Pacific. Yes. Thank you. Uh, will you agree to providing this committee with a fulsome and detailed explanation of why the Biden administration did not repudiate Hong Kong Chief Executive John Lee's claim of being invited to APEC? Uh, I can give you more background on that now, if, if that would be useful, uh, Senator. Well, why don't you do that as a question for the record? Could you that's that great. For me? I'll, I'll be happy That'll to do give that. give me a chance. But I, I do want to underscore very clearly here, uh, uh, we made clear to both China and Hong Kong authorities uh, that he would not be welcome uh, in San Francisco, and indeed he would need to be sending a second, which he did. So I, I do want to underscore that, that we never intended for him to participate in right. the APEC. And I appreciate your 
uh, yeah. public dec uh, declaration yeah. of that right here. Um, this one I'm going to uh, not necessarily give you a yes or no. You you can talk about it, and that is uh, uh, given China's ongoing support for Russia uh, in its war against Ukraine. What are your thoughts as we get to the end, and there will be an end of uh, discussions uh, regarding ending the war and then uh, on rebuilding Ukraine. And I'll give you a, a, a spoiler alert here. I don't think China ought to have any fingerprints on this yeah. whatsoever, but I appreciate hearing your thoughts on yeah. it. Look, um, Senator Rich, I have to say, in my discussions with your team, uh, which were extensive, uh, we had very uh, clear discussions around this issue, and I will tell you that they represented your views clearly and unmistakably. And I don't want to say that they schooled me, but I really came away uh, with a much deeper appreciation and I think a greater sense of what the limitations are for any kind of role that China can or would play in the future. So I just want to make clear about that. I will say personally I'm quite troubled by China's uh, support for Russia in its war in Ukraine. I think we can see over the course of the last year and a half or so, China has assisted through a variety of means, not necessarily direct military means, but through you know, support through commercial and other engagements. But Russia has largely reconstituted militarily. And even though China uh, purports to be a uh, independent actor that has not taken sides, very clearly they have taken sides here. And that is deeply concerning to me. So one of the reasons why, and there are many reasons why we have to be so committed uh, uh, to Ukraine is that authoritarians take lessons from other authoritarian experiences. And I will tell you one of the reasons why countries in the Indo-Pacific are so determined to support Ukraine is because they don't want the same thing to happen in the Indo-Pacific. So we, we have to be vigilant here because this is not just about the future of Europe, which in and itself is an enormous and important concern in the United States. We have to be concerned of what lessons that China would take from us if it went badly. Well, I appreciate that. I think that's uh, well said. I, I don't think there's any question that China will try to leverage uh, some way into into this, uh, trying to uh, bootstrap themselves somehow in Europe. And uh, so yeah. I, I think we need to be vigilant in that regard. Well, my time's almost up, but I do, I know you're on the National Security Council and get to hear about the discussions. Uh, uh, what in the world is the administration thinking about <laughs> freeing up cash to Iran? I mean, I was yeah. aghast when you started, when when the administration was started with the first six billion, and then even worse than that, after the fighting started in Israel, they're talking about the other ten billion. So help help me understand this. I just I, I can't I just can't square that circle. I really can't. Yeah. Well, look, Senator, I I, I do want to just underscore a, a few things. I, I tried to lay out clearly what, at least my view, and I think the view of uh, the administration is on Iran's role. I, I do want to underscore, underscore one thing that despite some discussions in the media and elsewhere, I, I don't think anyone sees that there's any chance in the current environment to go back to the JCPOA. It's just not on the table. It's not up for discussion. So just, I, I hope that at least provides you some assurance more. I, I think that's 
pretty straightforward. I, I agree, but it's still important to state on the, luck, uh, on the record. So I, I will also say that the administration has not lifted any sanctions on Iran. And overall, I think the beginning of the administration, the number is about 400 that have been applied. I, I, I recognize the concerns on the $6 billion, and I could, you, you've heard all the arguments more generally. The money has not been spent. It's still in an account. We have absolutely full confidence that if money were taken out of it, it would be used specifically for the needs of the Iranian people and for humanitarian concerns. But I do want to just underscore, um, Senator, I think we're in an environment right now where I- Iran is... Uh, taking a role that is so antithetical to our interests that we must be even more vigilant. We must be sending a military message that provocations will be uh, met and and met with stern responses. We must isolate them diplomatically, internationally. And I just want to commit to you, I, I do think this is a subject that we need to have close consultations on. And we've got to work with you, not just at the end of policy deliberations, but as the senator said, chairman said, earlier in the process. So I think we share many of the strategic assessments of Iran going forward and managing this delicate period, given the conflict uh, in Gaza between Israel uh, uh, and and Hamas, is going to be critical. Thank you for that answer. Senator Menendez. Uh, Thank you. Mr. Campbell, uh, I haven't had the pleasure of working with you, uh, so I don't know uh, your views as deeply. And and since your position that you're nominated for is global in nature, I have a series of questions I want to pursue to get an understanding of where you're you're coming from in that regard. Um, For the first time in history, the Republican majority in the House passed a bill conditioning aid to Israel. At the same time, uh, I've been sensing contradictory messages from the White House as to whether or not President Biden is considering or would consider placing conditions on aid to Israel. Uh, What is uh, your view? Uh, on creating conditions on aid to Israel? Well, look, Senator Mendez, I think you know this, that that all aid at some level is conditioned. We don't just send money out the door. We go through a careful process, both at the State Department and the interagency. So I just want to just begin that. I'm not talking about the normal conditions. I I know you're not. but I, I, my own personal view is, and I believe that this, this is the view of the president and the administration, is that we are standing side by side with Israel in an absolutely desperate fight, that they're facing enormous challenges, the worst attack, terrorist attack in their history, largest loss of life. Um, I, I do believe that we have been careful uh, publicly and very clear privately about some of our concerns about the conduct of the military operation. And we want to make clear that there is a difference between Hamas fighters and Palestinian civilians also, and particularly uh, children and women. And those conversations are ongoing. Uh, that's what you do with close allies and partners. You speak directly to them. I, their I, get, I get the conversations, and I agree with them. Yeah. So uh, I, I think that's... But the question is... Uh, is creating conditionality a way to achieve that goal or to hamstring? I mean, look, I'm for our military telling Israel how it meets the challenge of Hamas in an urban setting. I'm not sure that the standards that we seek of Israel were met in Afghanistan and Iraq by the United States. 
So the question in my mind is, is it, you're going to be sitting in a position not only of authority but of advice. Is it, would it be your advice to create conditionality on aid to Israel at this time? It would not be at this okay. time. Thank Let you. me ask you this. With reference to Iran, I was heartened to hear some of the things you said. You called it a strategic nemesis. Would you consider Iran an enemy of the United States? I, I think they're uh, an antagonist, Senator, yes. Well, yeah. So here's a country that continues to violate its obligations under the JCPOA that other countries yeah. still maintained with, that is not forthcoming with the IAEA about their enrichment uh, uh, operations, where we, I don't think we clearly know what they have and don't have, don't come clean with their past uh, pursuit of nuclear weapons. Here's a country that is giving uh, Russia drones uh, in Ukraine. Here's a country through its proxies that is uh, trying to strike at our troops in Iraq and Syria. I don't, I don't know how much more it comes before one says, yeah, that's an enemy of the United States. Uh, and so is it time to seek to internationalize the sanctions that we've had? Because we've had sanctions, but of course, internationalizing sanctions are the way in which we ultimately achieve greater results. Uh, Senator, I, I can't disagree with anything that you've said here, and I think if confirmed, um, frankly, I would uh, welcome the opportunity to have greater discussions on this, both with you and the team at the State Department. I do want to underscore that we are contesting them um, significantly. You saw the statement that Secretary Austin made the day before yesterday that, yes, some of their um, uh, associated groups do occasionally attack us or try to many times ineffectively, but when we strike back at them, we always hit our target. I just want to say that I think the administration remains absolutely resolute that we will uh, persecute our interests, we will take necessary military. I appreciate the, the tit for tat, but I, I, I believe a stronger message has to be sent. Let me ask you, do you believe that we should be selling F-16s to Turkey when it continues to not allow Sweden uh, to move forward in its accession to uh, NATO, when it continues uh, to threaten its neighbor, the Hellenic Republic, uh, when it continues to jail uh, lawyers and journalists and human rights activists uh, in a long list uh, of issues yeah. that it faces? Is, is that in the national interest and security of the United States? So, look, I think you point out the complexities of our relationship with Turkey, and there are some real concerns here. I, I can't get into the details. I'm not specifically briefed about where things stand, particularly uh, centered on the F-16, but I will, uh, if I'm confirmed, be involved in those decisions. I will say that um, they are involved in many things that concern us, um, and I'm confident that we will, over time, uh, admit Finland into NATO despite some of the challenges that we've had procedurally. I will also say there is a modest balance here. There are things that Turkey has assisted us with. Um, they have assisted us in the counter-ISIS campaign. They have, uh, they've uh, helped us in the food, the, the transshipment of grain uh, through the Black Sea. They have done some things that have been in our interests. And so we have but to... But in the weight of it, I would just suggest to you that uh, those few things far uh, don't, don't outweigh the, the various uh, elements of which there are negativity. I have a series of other questions. Obviously, I don't have the time for them. Thank I'm going to submit them for the record. I'd Thank really you. like a responsive uh, answer so that um, I can decide on uh, your nomination. Thank you. Thank you very much.
Senator Romney. Mr. Campbell, thank you for uh, your willingness to continue to serve our country uh, in a, an admirable way, in an important way. I think we would agree that, uh, uh, that China intends to replace us, probably by mid-century, uh, as the economic, uh, military, and geopolitical leader of the world. Uh, and they're on a pretty good track uh, so far. They've convinced a lot of nations that used to be free nations to side with them relative to Taiwan. They've monopolized um, a number of industries. They've, uh, they've been able to achieve dominance of key raw materials for the industries of the future. Um, uh, they have uh, infiltrated uh, uh, various governments around the world. I mean, they've, they've been uh, extraordinarily successful in, in their efforts so far. At the same time, uh, they have vulnerabilities. And uh, their demographic uh, reality is a real vulnerability. Uh, the, um, the debt overhang that exists uh, uh, in, in China uh, is a real vulnerability. It is a, an area which is, um, if you will, absolutely primed for us having a very effective strategy to figure out how it is they're so successful in accomplishing certain things around the world. They've got, of course, they've, they've gone into Latin America, to Africa, even to the Caribbean. They're all around us. Um, and they say, of course, that they're worried about us, uh, you know, constraining them and containing them. Well, it's like, that's so laughable. They're all over the world. They're far more all over the world even than we are in many respects. Um, they also say they want to respect the sovereignty of other nations, that they're not in favor of one nation interfering with another. At the same time, they smile on their biggest ally, Russia, invading their neighbor, um, uh, Ukraine. So we can't take them at their word. The, the need for a comprehensive strategy, not necessarily in the public, but one behind the scenes, has never been greater. And I appreciate your working with members of my staff and and others to develop that strategy. But Senator Menendez and I drafted a bill, as you know, to have that strategy developed and to be provided to this committee by January 9th, uh, excuse me, July 9th of this year. It's yeah. later than that now. We haven't received it. I, I know you're working to try and make that happen. What's the holdup and when will we receive it? Yeah. First of all, let me just unbelievably graciously put, uh, I, I probably deserve worse. Uh, uh, I'm committed to get you both the unclassified and classified versions of this, and I will deliver it to you personally. Uh, I, too, have been a little bit frustrated. You know, you don't understand every element of government. This is something that should be shared and done in consultation. I will tell you, we have that strategy. We have followed it. Um, and... Look, I think you paint a picture of uh, challenges that we face, but it is incredibly important for us not to be completely discouraged and to have confidence in what we are doing. And I will just give you the other side of that ledger, if I can, Senator, just very quickly. I think we've made incredible investments in technologies, the key technologies of the 21st century. We understand that this is going to be the high ground where the battle for supremacy will be fought. We're investing in them. We're trying to restrict the most critical of those technologies from going to China. I think that has been largely a success, bipartisan success, Senator Young leading the way, number one. Number two, Look, I, I would stack up what we've done with allies and partners with anyone and look at the countries that in the past that had really flirted with a different kind of relationship with China who have made fundamental decisions to be with us. 
Great Britain and Australia. AUKUS is for a significant uh, inspirational, powerful program, not just on submarines, but on technology for the future. India, a key country for the 21st century, working much more closely with us, Japan and South Korea, other countries in Southeast Asia, and what we've done in Europe, all of whom I think some of the blinders have come off about what they're dealing with with respect to China. We have huge challenges in the global south, as you rightly point out. We have begun to diversify in terms of supply chains and critical minerals, but 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 we are doing better in the contest than I think sometimes um, we uh, uh, tell ourselves. And I will say, just Senator, you're a, you're a, you're a, you understand the history of the region of the Indo-Pacific. The one theme that has permeated discussions for 50 years in Asia was the idea of American decline. People thought we were in decline during the Korean War. They thought we would never recover from the Vietnam War. Reagan brought us back. Cold War, people thought that Japan was the ultimate victor. Each time, there's something about the American character, our inventiveness, our ability to reinvent ourselves that have propelled us forward. I have confidence that we can do that again. China believes that we are in hurtling decline. It is critical that we prove otherwise. Thank you. Welcome, Dr. Campbell. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be with you today, and grateful to Lael and your family, um, your daughter Coco and others, for their support and for the great conversation we had. I will confess I have not read your 10 books, but I look forward to reading several of them. Um, you have laid out in great detail the remarkable record you have at helping stand up innovative and resolute partnerships between the United States and key allies and partners in the Indo-Pacific. And I think you are the right man at the right moment for this challenge for us. I'll also point out that December 7th, the anniversary of the Pearl Harbor attack, is also the anniversary of the moment that Senator Vandenberg, a Republican from Michigan, who was chairman of this committee, dramatically changed his position from an America first isolationism, urging that we reach an accommodation with Japan, to recognizing that our only path forward was a bipartisan one, locking arms across the aisle here and looking to the world with a common determination to advance freedom. Kurt, I'm very worried that right now the Senate stands on the precipice of failing to provide critically needed support and supplies, funding and material for the Ukrainians who are fighting Russian aggression, for our partners in the Indo-Pacific, for Israel and its fight against Hamas, and for the humanitarian needs of dozens of countries. Just briefly, could you say what would the consequences be for our global leadership if we were to fail to provide the support critically needed by our allies at this moment? Senator, thank you for that, and thank you for your nice comments. Look, the, the truth is the, the struggle, the desperate struggle in Ukraine is no longer just a regional conflict. Many outside players are hugely invested. What's different about this conflict, not only have we seen substantial uh, resources from Europe, even greater than from the United States, but huge support for the Indo-Pacific because they understand the stakes about how this region, how Europe is increasingly linked to the Indo-Pacific more, more generally. So per, myself personally, I worry that the wrong lessons will be taken. If you look at the doctrine that was published by China 
and Russia uh, before the um, Beijing Winter Olympics and, and really look at it closely. It's a document out of the 1930s where big countries should dominate smaller countries on their periphery. That, that is antithetical to everything we believe and support. I will say one of the things that I have appreciated and enjoyed the most is that, yes, this is a highly contested time. There's lots of signs of dysfunction. But I have found the discussions with this community, both together and with individual senators, I think there's much more that unite you all than divide you. And it has given me personally much more confidence about the road ahead. And so I know that this period is incredibly intense and difficult. I'm not involved in those deliberations. I have confidence that we are going to find a way to basically uh, secure support for Ukraine appropriately, working with other allies and partners, make sure that we take the necessary steps, standing with Israel, but also planning for the future uh, in Gaza and elsewhere. I'm confident the president said yesterday he's prepared to make substantial compromises with respect to the border, and we have critical needs in the Indo-Pacific to stand with Taiwan to support the Philippines. So I think the comprehensive nature of this uh, budget request will affirm America's strategic purpose in ways that are deeply consequential and will go right at the heart at the criticisms and the hopes of those who wish us ill. Thank you, Dr. Campbell. Um, two quick follow-on questions, yeah. if I might. And I agree with you that addressing border security is a critical part of our yeah. path forward. Um, a key piece of the supplemental is also funding for the Compacts of Free Association states, the Marshall Islands, Micronesia, Palau. Um, I think it's critical that we pass robust funding to strengthen these valuable partnerships with Pacific Islands. What would the impact be on our position in the Indo-Pacific if that were knocked out of this package or if we were to fail to pass the COFA funding? So first of all, I want to thank you. I also want to, again, uh, thank Senator Rich and his staff. I've gone through all the correspondence, all the suggestions about how we step up our game in the Pacific, something that is actually very near and dear to my heart. I am proud of the efforts I've taken over the last two years in making sure that we do better in the Pacific, a place that we have enormous strategic, historic, moral um, responsibilities. Um, the COFA uh, uh, agreement, as you know, provides support for the three nations in the Northern Pacific, critical to our security. I will simply say to the Senate that literally China is waiting. At the moment that we are unable to fulfill our commitment to fulfill the COFA arrangements with these countries, uh, arrangements that we've enjoyed for absolutely for decades, that keeps these countries in our purview, that work closely with us, you could not ask for a better ally and partner than, than Palau, President Whips, a son of Baltimore, wants to be with the United States. He needs this agreement. And if we don't get it, uh, you can expect that literally the next day, Chinese diplomats, uh, uh, military, and other folks will be on the plane landing in each of these things, try to 
secure a better deal uh, for China. We need to do this. Well, thank you for your focus uh, on the region. I look forward to traveling uh, either with you or informed by you. Great. Um, last topic, uh, bipartisan legislation Senator Graham and I worked on for years created the Global Fragility Act. I'm encouraged by your service at a senior level in the Pentagon as well as your service in the Navy as you move towards a senior position in the State Department because the whole goal of the Global Fragility Act was to demonstrate that the strategy that we followed across several administrations in Colombia of pulling together jointly across state, AID, DOD, in partnership with a country for a long period of time was the best way to deal with a fragile state. As you know, I've been very frustrated by the initial uh, period um, of GFA implementation, both the selection of some countries that struck me as well outside the scope of it uh, and the the difficulty getting buy-in, in particular, from senior DOD officials. Uh, will you commit to working with me on Global Fragility Act implementation, including improving interagency coordination, targeting sustained funding towards these countries, and making sure that we prove out the thesis underlying it um, that was the result of a two-year-long study and development process by senior experienced diplomats that we have to figure out a way to get a 3D strategy right long-term? First of all, Senator, I want to thank you for your leadership and creativity in putting this piece of legislation together. It is bipartisan, uh, signed into law by President Trump. Uh, I actually was very grateful. I argued that one of the countries that I worked on in the Indo-Pacific, Papua New Guinea, be included in that for a variety of reasons, has vast oil and natural gas reserves, but continues to be one of the poorest countries in the world. Why is that? And so how to think about that going forward. I think what's most inventive and important about this legislation is that it encourages, it requires a degree of coordination between three critical agencies, AID, the State Department, and the Department of Defense. If I'm confirmed, I think this is a deeply innovative uh, piece of uh, legislation that should be further uh, implemented. And frankly, we're dealing in Africa, Latin America, and the Pacific with an uh, increasing number of fragile states that need greater support. We've got to be careful how we do it. We just can't pile resources on. But a constructive, multifaceted strategy like that you've laid out, that's the right approach. I'm committed to it. Thank you. Um, I look forward to working together on coastal West Africa, on U.S. engagement with the global south, on PNG and on other countries. Uh, and I look forward to supporting your confirmation. Senator Thank you, Senator. Thank you, Senator Coons. Um, and again, welcome, Dr. Campbell. It's good to see you here. Um, I think you and I share the, the, the understanding of how critical it is to build bridges between our Indo-Pacific allies, how critical it is for us to unify our national strengths, how critical it is for us to work together to advance our common economic and national security interest in the region. One area I wanted to speak with you about today is regarding energy cooperation between the United States, Korea, and Japan. Uh, I'd particularly like you to articulate your vision to advance energy cooperation and energy security among the three nations, and also specifically your thoughts on nuclear and LNG. Yeah, thank you very much, Senator Knight. If I could just, just take a moment uh, to thank you for your leadership on Indo-Pacific issues, but also for your support for Japan. It is a country that is dear to both of us. Uh, it is a critical partner. We cannot be successful in the Indo-Pacific unless we work closely with them. 
they are your first, uh, when they come to the United States, your office is their first stop. I'm happy to see them after. So mm -hmm. thank you for what you've done. Um, let me just say that my own personal view, and I think the view increasingly in the administration, is that um, given our urgent and immediate challenges, we need to double down on transitional fuels. And I know some people do not like to use that concept with with respect to natural gas. We ultimately want to go to renewables, but in this critical period, um, taking advantage of vast stores of American energy and other uh, places uh, more aligned with the United States, working with Japan and South Korea to ensure that those energy supplies are safe and secure. I will note, uh, and Senator, I know you, the, you know this and you encourage this as well, when the when the energy crisis got most difficult in Ukraine last year, it was Japan and South Korea that agreed to do complex swaps so that they provided that urgent and badly needed energy um, to um, uh, Ukraine. Um, we need to support uh, Japan and South Korea more here. Uh, we also need to work with them on innovative nuclear projects. I think you know that there are some interesting projects that we're now working on. Our friend Dan Poneman has uh, pioneered work on small uh, uh, nuclear reactors, much safer. Japan has invaded, uh, in, uh, you know, basically developed some innovative technologies. There are some business challenges, some companies and uh, struggles with, you know, ultimate uh, uh, issues associated with government backing. Ultimately, um, we highlighted this in uh, our engagements with both individually with South Korea and Japan as the trilateral partnership builds momentum. This is going to be at the center of what we intend to do. Just a, a, a quick point. I've, I've noted the discussion of the trilateral national laboratories cooperation. This is a parochial question because Oak Ridge National Labs is in my home state. But do you have a thought of how our laboratories will be cooperating? Yeah. In, in fact, I, I think you know this. The person that has championed this the, the most is, is Ambassador Emanuel, who served us with distinction. He wants that lab to play a key mm -hmm. role. I do, too. Great. That's great. If I could turn again to, to an area where I want to congratulate you, and that's on the role that you played in the Camp David Summit, bringing together the leaders of South Korea, Japan, and the United States. Um, I think that was a, an important step. I was pleased to engage, to engage in a complimentary trilateral conference uh, in San Francisco on the margins of APAC. You and I discussed that we had some 40 CEOs, yeah. uh, national security leaders and government leaders that attended that. Uh, and I, I see great promise and great potential there. Um, one thing that I'm curious about, though, is that China is now trying to establish its own trilateral conference with leaders in South Korea and Japan. I'd be curious in your perspective what China's goals here might be. Yeah, thank you. And, and in fact, Senator, you, I'm sure you know this, but their trilateral uh, uh, far precedes ours. Uh, the trilateral that went on between China, Japan, and South Korea um, was very active in the 2000s. Um, uh, you know, China uh, had withhold certain engagements from both South Korea or Japan, and so that has sort of fallen a little bit by the wayside. But the Chinese have noted the actions that we've taken. I would say among all the things that we have done, they look at our engagement with Vietnam, working more on the security side, what we've done with India. These concern them. The thing that I think they recognize 
um, has the potential, the most significance in changing the security arch architecture of Asia is if Japan and South Korea can finally and fundamentally put their animosity behind them to focus on the future in everything, energy, technology, security, people to people, education. This is our goal. I do want to thank you for what you're doing. I do want to also just say it is in our interest to commend more publicly the risks and the courage that have been shown by Japan and South Korea. They need to recognize that we fully support at every possible level what they've done and we seek to strengthen it as it goes forward. Excellent. And I'm confident that China will be unsuccessful in building the kind of bonds of trust that we are doing now with Japan and South Korea. Indeed, I appreciate that confidence. I look forward to supporting your nomination. Thank you very much, Senator. As you can tell, members are moving in and out because of votes on the floor. I fully understand, Senator. Votes on the floor Thank of the United States Senate. Senator Ricketts. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, Dr. Campbell, for your willingness to continue to serve our country. And I appreciate your comment that you made about uh, people thinking this country was in decline and being wrong numerous times in the past. I remember uh, being a young business school student in the late 80s, yeah. and Japan's manufacturing base was going to take over the world. And obviously, they're a very important ally, but... Uh, did not work out quite the way people were predicting yeah. at that time. Um, anyway, so uh, when you and I spoke in my office, we talked about what we need to do to deter the People's Republic of China with regard to any sort of military aggression toward Taiwan. And we talked about a number of things, not only preparedness of our military, but what we need to do with regard to investments in technology, working with our partners and allies, uh, what we need to do with regard to our economic and investment policies. And couldn't agree more on those things. And you've highlighted some of the very positive developments that have occurred that you've participated in with regard to our partners and allies. But there's one area that we have not made progress where we have frankly failed, which is trade. And the People's Republic of China is not sitting still on this. You know, they announced their regional comprehensive uh, economic partnership, which is their 15-member free trade bloc. In response, the administration has put together the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. This is really aligning regulations and standards around four yeah. pillars. It does not include things such as market access or tariffs. And my understanding is that the APEC conference, they had hoped to be able to roll out the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework pillars, and that got put to the back burner, uh, so that's not happened. But maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, certainly states like Nebraska, yeah. we want to see more open access and reduce reduction in tariffs and so forth. Uh, we also uh, hear that from our allies. They would like to see the same thing. I was a supporter of TPP. I believe you were as well. Talk to me about what are our allies getting with the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, and do we need to start addressing things like market access and tariffs? So first of all, Senator, I do want to thank you for the meeting I had with you, and I want to commend you for really focusing on the Indo-Pacific. I do think um, th this, uh, the thing that we need to underscore is that this body has a long history of very distinguished members who are committed to the Indo-Pacific, and it's nice to see people following uh, in the 
the steps of Senator Lugar, uh, uh, Senator Inouye, and others. So I wanted to thank you for that. And I note very clearly uh, your state's interests in broadening uh, agricultural and other kinds of engagements in the Indo-Pacific. So I support that. So I, I do want to just take a moment to stand back. Um, and the larger picture, in many ways, is quite impressive. We have, we're the largest investor in the region. Last year, was uh, by most measurements the largest trade uh, year in our history with the Indo-Pacific. It was much more diverse than in the past, not just with China, other countries. So we are diversifying. We are working with allies and partners on diversifying supply chains and issues associated with critical minerals, working in technology. So we are part and fully integrated into the Indo-Pacific economic and commercial uh, picture. So we have to begin with that. But the truth is that the region expects us to play a role as a confident, engaged uh, player on commercial and economic matters. Um, I think if I am confirmed, I'm going to commit to work with you and others to, feel, to see if there is a bipartisan way forward. I think you, um, in your remarks, I think you recognize um, implicitly that there are challenges on both sides of the aisle. Questions about whether trade or certain kinds of trade uh, agreements, are they good for the United States? Do they benefit our workers? I think we have to take that into consideration and we have to see what's possible. I will also say, I think there are elements of IPEF that are important on diversifying supply chains, on looking at how taxation policy works. These are critical operating matters, but the truth is there is more that we can do. I'm committed to working with you on that going forward. So is it fair to say then that you think IPEF is, a, is important, and I'm not trying to argue that regulations and standards aren't important, but that we also need to look for a way to move forward on other uh, additional trade agreements to be able to counteract what the PRC is doing in the Indo-Pacific. Because I think our allies are expecting us to be able to provide an alternative. I, I don't believe that they want to do these things with China without having us uh, have the same opportunities. And I think they'd prefer to yeah. uh, be a trade partner with us rather than the PRC. Yeah. So look, I can say this, and I think it is absolutely essential that in our future that we are deeply fundamentally in, uh, intertwined and engaged with the commerce, business, and economics of the Indo-Pacific. And if we are not, we will not uh, succeed. Yeah, and I, just, I, I'm, I realize I'm out of, well, Chairman's busy anyway. Yes, sir, go so, ahead. Uh, uh, I'm out of time, but I, I, one of the things I will just highlight... We're just negotiating here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> one of the reasons I think it's important is, I, as the former governor of Nebraska, I can tell you that the PRC was a terrible trade partner. They were a terrible trade partner. They certainly haven't lived up to their agreements they agreed to under the Trump administration, but even before that, I can tell you the, the products they bought from us, they would buy a lot, and then they'd cut us off. I mean, it was just... It, they were not a good trade partner, so I think there is an opportunity for us... To, to be able to push back on them. We can be successful, but we got to make sure that we're working our partners and get these, these trade deals done. So thank, thank you, you, Senator. Thank, thank you, you, Dr. Campbell. Senator Merkley. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for your service and your, your testimony. Do you and does the administration support the ability of Palestinians from Gaza to be able to return to their homes in Gaza when Gaza starts to rebuild? 
first of all, Senator, thank, I do want to thank you for hosting me uh, for breakfast, and I, we're taking steps to make sure that your famous breakfast order is enshrined in the um, menu, and so thank you for that. The trifecta. The trifecta, right. Thank you. Um, so, look, I, I believe that is our policy. I think that is the just and right thing to do, and I believe that the United States will need and will want to work with other partners to ensure that uh, that ability is possible. Thank, thank you. And will the U.S. work with, with Israel, with the Defense Forces, with the National Police to make sure that any armaments we provide, and particularly small arms uh, and uh, uh, semi-automatic or automatic machine guns are not transferred to settlers outside of the INP and the IDF? Senator, I, to be honest, I do not know enough about that those uh, particular provisions. Uh, I know that we are working closely with the Israelis to ensure that um, actions taken uh, seek to minimize uh, damage uh, to uh, women and children, to civilians. Um, I, I will need to get back to you directly on that specific uh, question. Thank you. I'll just point out that given the increased uh, settler violence, on the, uh, a lot of attacks on Palestinian uh, villagers that I would be very concerned, and I know many Americans would be very concerned for our arms to be transferred that are intended for the IDF and the INP to be transferred to settlers. I, I will say I've seen the statements of uh, Secretary Blinken and others condemning those actions against uh, uh, Palestinian civilians. Uh, I share your concern here. So the administration has expressed concern about how the expansion of settlements and outposts and checkpoints make the vision of two states for two peoples a very difficult path. Would it make sense to have an annual report that, that tracks the expansion of existing settlements, the establishment of new settlements, checkpoints, and outposts? Uh, look, I, I think consultation with the Hill on this critical set of issues um, uh, is essential. And I believe that as we go forward, um, the only viable way is a two-state solution. It's going to be extremely difficult, as you point out, highly contentious, but it is the only way to ensure that the region can live uh, in peace. I, I, I think that there are going to be myriad ways that the executive branch needs to work um, uh, with partners on Capitol Hill to ensure that this is truly a national effort. And so I would support any appropriate communications or engagement. And one of the reasons I was framing um, the questions in this way in terms of the administration, because we've heard uh, folks in the administration say, um, we don't want conditions on the bill, but we are intending to press hard on a series of key issues as trying to clarify whether these were the types of key issues the administration is planning to press on. Yeah. So, look, uh, Senator, I, I can say that I know that there are um, discussions uh, underway now on how we are thinking about the way forward uh, after this uh, terrible conflict concludes. Um, some of that frankly, awaits if I'm confirmed. And yeah, so I, I would like to just suggest to you that if confirmed, I promise to make sure I'm deeply familiar and engage in those discussions, and then we'll um, engage with you uh, as such. Well, I want to restate uh, how absolutely horrific the attacks uh, were by Hamas. 
but, and uh, I also want to be very clear that the only future peace based on positive aspirations for the Israelis and the Palestinians does involve two states for two people, and then we have to work very hard towards that, and as you have, as you have uh, stated. Uh, turning to Ukraine, it was in 1938 when Chamberlain went to Munich and said to Hitler, we'll look the other way, we'll declare peace in our time, you go ahead and take that piece of Czechoslovakia. Yeah. I am concerned that if we fail to provide support to Ukraine, which will also affect the whole Atlantic Alliance, it'll drive cracks in NATO, it will certainly undermine the support of other nations for Ukraine, that there is an equivalence to saying to Putin, well, you can take Ukraine. And uh, I think I consider this uh, possibility of a Munich-style moment, this style of appeasement of Putin, to be an enormous mistake should we, should we fail to provide support to Ukraine. Is there anything to my analogy that, that you find resonance in? Um, Senator, I completely identify with what you've laid out. I, I'm of a generation that's uh, very familiar with um, the false promises of appeasement in the 1930s. Uh, I can remember in debates that in, at Oxford and elsewhere that the, the harshest criticism that someone could make at you or to someone is, where's your umbrella? Like the umbrella that Chamberlain carried into Munich. Um, so uh, I do believe authoritarians uh, follow closely, take lessons. Uh, and I think that this is uh, an intense test of American commitment. I will say, I think through the support of this body and others and the bipartisan efforts that we've seen, I think if we look at the last two years, this we have done remarkable things and we can do more, working closely with our Ukrainian uh, partners. And I'm committed to support that. And I think, I think there are uh, strong supporters on Capitol Hill to see this through as well. Thank you very much. Senator Duckworth. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, um, uh, Dr. Campbell. When we met in my office recently, we discussed the importance of the United States' continued commitment to implementing the Indo-Pacific strategy, um, but also the challenge of maintaining some sort of engagement with the PRC. Uh, obviously, they're our greatest near-peer competitor. Obviously, they challenge us uh, in national security, but we also have to be able to work with them collaborator collaboratively across the region to do things like counter climate change or counter the next global public health crisis. Uh, um, uh, deal with economic crises as well. Um, so to live up to our enormous potential, we need to approach this work through a coordinated whole-of-government approach. Um, as you move from the NSC to the State Department, you come with very unique experiences, having been in DOD yourself. Um, I'd like to invite you to speak briefly to how, if confirmed, you will ensure robust interagency coordination and continued strengthening of our position and our commitment to our partnership in the Indo-Pacific. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Duckworth. I do want to just underscore one thing that she, uh, the senator said at the outset that's important. Um, we've had a series of consultations. I think what I have been most pleased and impressed by in our private meetings, uh, Senator Duckworth has come right at me 
and uh, been clear about areas where we need to do better. And it was in 2021 that the center came and said, you're not engaging Southeast Asia effectively enough. You need to do uh, better. It was from those conversations that President Biden decided to invite all the ASEAN leaders to Washington, D.C. for the first time, a major diplomatic initiative that we've carried forward. And so I, I do want to underscore that these dialogues and discussions are important in the uh, formulation and execution of our strategy. So even though it's painful, I want to thank you for that, Senator. Look, I, so for us to be effective in everything we, we do, there is a need for a much higher degree of coordination uh, among all our tools of government. And so it's been said before, you know, we have one agency that's massive, huge, with huge resources uh, at the Department of Defense and other agencies with less uh, resources. Nevertheless, there's huge capacity, economic, diplomatic, military, that need to be coordinated, particularly in the Indo-Pacific. I will say that if you look at much of our strategy, they involve key moving uh, uh, pieces and moving parts in each of the bureaucracies that I've laid out and beyond that. I do want to commit to you that if I am confirmed, I will continue to work uh, as part of a collegial and engaged effort to ensure that the United States maintains a purposeful engagement in the Indo-Pacific. And I also want to thank you that you've constantly reminded us that even though we're facing hugely hard challenges as elsewhere, we have to be able to focus uh, on the Indo-Pacific, and I'm committed to do that. Um, how do you assess our current staffing levels and resourcing for diplomatic missions across the Indo-Pacific? Um, uh, you know, the ASEAN mission, you know, I've talked to you about this. I think the ASEAN mission itself is under understaffed. Um, and also, how will you approach the challenge of balancing our need to invest in the region, even as we address other urgent crises around the globe? And I would say that our uh, uh, Africa experts would say that we're understaffed there, too. Yeah. So, look... Senator, I, I, you know, there's a tendency, I, I worked in the Indo-Pacific, so I noted the lack of staff in the Pacific, the difficulty in setting up diplomatic offices there. I thought we had to be more innovative. I look at certain regions that I think maybe it might be, you know, have more staffing. I, I'm struck that, that some of our hardship posts in the Pacific and Africa, we have had difficulty in filling those. Um, and so I, I, I recognize that it's not something you can look at just at one place. You have to look at the totality. I, I come down to the, with the inescapable conclusion is that we need to recruit more people. I love the idea of an innovative uh, effort to look at how to modernize as part of that. Does that mean bringing in mid-career people? Does that mean being able to recruit from other walks of life, like the military and the like? I, I personally see, and I've seen it up close, and I'll just give you one quick story if I can, Senator. I remember last year I went to the Solomons for the first time. We landed in our plane, we got off, um, we were met at the airport by one diplomat, probably the most hard-charging guy uh, I've ever met. And he was exhausted. He, he was a one-person uh, diplomacy in the Solomons, one of our most contested places. He was living in a hotel with his dog. And as we drove into town, we went by the gleaming Chinese embassy. 
dozens and dozens of staffers. We just have to do better. We have to be able to find more resources and make sure that we get these people out into the field. And so, look, I, if I am confirmed, I am committed to doing that. I will do everything possible to make sure that our best and brightest are most diverse, are serving in the key regions that are being contested that define American purpose. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'm going to turn the gavel over to Senator Schatz. I apologize. There's some additional. I object. <laughs> you don't get the right to object. Okay. Sorry about that. I'd like to hear. But there's other issues affecting our committee that are on the floor at this particular moment that I'm required to be over for. I want the members to know they have until the close of business tomorrow questions for the record. And uh, Dr. Campbell, I would ask that you get them back as quickly as possible and as thoroughly as possible, because we are trying to expedite the consideration of your nomination, considering the importance it is to the State Department. And um, Senator Rich and I are going to try to expedite the consideration, but it will require you to make sure you get your answers back as quickly and as thoroughly as possible. We'll, we'll get it done, Chairman. Thank you. And with that, I was going to recognize Senator Booker, but after his comments, he's going to have to wait a little bit longer. All right. Senator Booker. All right. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'm sorry to see you go. I'm going to go quickly before the power goes to Schatz's head. Um, it, is, it is great to see you here, especially with the two women at your back. Uh, you kind of did a daughter diss. She, she's sacrificing not taking that test today yep. that she was prepared for and she was going to ace. But she decided to uh, come here to support you, and I'm, I'm extraordinary to see that. Um, I am very excited about your leadership. I'm very grateful and excited to vote for you on the floor. I just want to try to uh, use this as an opportunity uh, to look into the future and talk about the continent of Africa. Yeah. I know your specialty is, is Asia, and that is such an important uh, part of the globe. But I, I don't think most people understand that the emergence that Africa will have in the next 50 years, I mean, even by 2050 alone, they're going to be so large that one out of every four people on the planet Earth will be Africans. It's a, uh, a country that this youth uh, bulge, while China's declining, declining demographically, Europe is declining demographically, we have demographic challenges here. That youth bubble in Africa really is gonna have an extraordinary shaping element on all of humanity. And then you add into that arts and culture, you add into that their booming tech sector and innovation sector, you add into that their control of, of critical natural resources for the future of our planet. Um, what's astounding to me is um, how uh, we, who are only 4% of the globe population, uh, don't do more to understand that our growth, our future, not just our security, uh, but the upside of the possibilities of showing up more in partnership with African nations. And so could you please let me, uh, help me understand how you view this? And clearly, in my opinion, looking at China's activities on the continent, even Russia's activities on the continent, we are not necessarily matching in terms of focus, energy, investment, partnerships uh, to the degree that I think we should to counter those, um, those influences on the continent. Uh, Senator, thank you very much. I, I do want to just begin by saying I, I am grateful that uh, my daughter Coco is here. And, you know, it's supposed to be the case that the parents te teach the children. There isn't hardly a week that goes by. I've rarely seen a more disciplined person. Um, uh, you know, that old adage, do your job. Uh, 
Coco always does her job, never has to be reminded. I'm the one who has to be reminded to do my job. Um, I, uh, Senator, I've had a number of conversations with you. One of the things that we have not discussed is that I am actually an old Africanist. My PhD thesis at Oxford uh, was on Africa. Oh, wow. uh, yeah, I, I remember I did get a call uh, a few years ago saying, congratulations, your thesis has won an award, a typically British call. And I thought, oh, fantastic. What is the award? It said it's the, it's the, it's the book made most relevant by history. Um, so it was Soviet policy towards South Africa. But I traveled extensively in the region. Um, I, I, I've gone overland across Africa several, several times. I've spent a lot of time in East Africa in assistance programs. I know Southern Africa better. I completely associate myself with everything that you've said. And I'd go even further. You know, you look at the number of coups. Senator uh, Chairman Cardin talked about the number of coups that we've taken place uh, in the last several years, the fragility of certain states, the, the challenges that we face that some of the dominant countries that we've based much of our engagement on are facing challenges. Um, I think the whole region holds enormous promise but also it's an area that we have to step up our game. Now, I have been very impressed what, uh, with what Secretary Blinken and his team has done, but there still needs to be more. We need to make sure that we're working on critical minerals more directly. I think advancing governance, uh, uh, democratic practices, human rights, calling out where we see real challenges, as we saw yesterday, both the chairman and Secretary of State on Sudan, um, I, I, I do want to just say that if confirmed, I, I, I've talked to the Secretary about this, I intend to offer what assistance and personal engagement I can. We have to step up our game. We are being contested in the Global South. It is there that, frankly, I worry the most. Um, I'm not sure that, look, I think a few years ago, some of these countries looked at China carefully. I think they are more worried about the model that China offers, bringing in its own workers, not as much transparency. I think what we have to offer in terms of our uh, role, our investment capacity with the DFC and all others, I think we have a lot to bring to Africa, and my hope is that we'll be able to continue to do that. So let me say this in conclusion again, because I fear uh, Schatz is uh, drunk with power over there and might cut me off because now they've gone over my time. but. Um, just really quickly, um, there's so much attention right now on Ukraine and uh, yeah. what's happening in Israel and what's happening in Gaza. But if you look at the sheer numbers of children that are dying right now from the Horn to Sudan, um, it, it dwarfs. And yet we yeah. don't seem to see the same kind of outrage um, in our engagement on the continent. And in Sudan in particular, with five, over five million displaced people, um, I, I just want to urge uh, you and uh, our great Secretary of State to think about a special envoy for Sudan um, uh, to really make that more of a focus and a priority of our diplomatic power. And then the f uh, a final thing I'll just say, um, and I'm going to regret this, I'm sure, but my childhood nickname when I was a, by my mother when I was a kid was Coco. And that's why uh, I just want to make a predictive element that as great as her father is, uh, that I think that the daughter will one day, uh, uh, there'll be another Coco perhaps sitting on this dais in the future. Concur with that, Senator. I know uh, uh, time is short. I, I saw the statement put out by Chairman uh, uh, 
Cardin yesterday uh, asking for a special envoy. I, I, I just want to promise you we're going to look at that very carefully. Um, and we are highly attentive to uh, what we see tr taking place there. Secretary uh, Blinken's statement yesterday speaks for itself in terms of um, our concerns about war crimes. So I, I, I take very seriously what you're suggesting, and I do want to commit to you uh, as much focus and attention as I can bring to the issues. I'm very grateful. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for your grace and mercy. Thank you, Senator Booker. Um, uh, Mr. Campbell, thank you for being here to, to your family. Thank you for serving as well. Uh, let's just talk about North Korea. You've said that North Korea is a land of bad options. Yeah. Um, tell me if you've got any creative ideas for risk reduction. Um, cards on the table, I think CVID is a fantasy. I think that we have been um, engaged in magical thinking for quite a while. Um, and I'm wondering if, you know, you're known as a pragmatist and someone who understands the region really well. What do we do? Because clearly our current policy, which, by the way, has been the policy of, uh, on a bipartisan basis for 20-odd years, um, is clearly not working. Uh, what should we do? Well, look, uh, Senator Schwartz, let me just say... Shots. Shots, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I, I will say I, I, uh, this has flummoxed uh, American diplomats for decades. Um, but I'm concerned, as you are, that we're heading into a new period. And that period could be quite uh, concerning. Um, the, the steps that we've taken to date have been primarily to strengthen the regional um, deterrent around North Korea, what we've done with uh, Japan and South Korea uh, and other countries as well. And I think that's important. Um, the last uh, constructive diplomatic engagement that we had with North Korea um, was the aborted meeting in Vietnam between Kim Jong-un and President Trump. Essentially since then, uh, the North Koreans have rebuffed every effort uh, that we have uh, utilized to try to reach out to them. I will just say, Senator, that we have tried some what I thought were creative, inventive approaches. We've offered vaccines during the height of challenge that North Korea faced with respect to COVID. Um, we've offered certain kinds of engagements on humanitarian grounds. We've had difficulty getting any takers, even in addressing our uh, letters or approaches to them. Um, I do think uh, this is something that requires deeper consultations with allies and partners. I'm concerned that North Korea has taken very dangerous steps with respect to Russia providing military equipment to Russia's campaign. I'm concerned that North Korea continues to perfect its long-range uh, missile and nuclear capabilities in ways that are antithetical not only to the region but to the United States as well. And so, to be honest, I share your concerns. Uh, I, I am worried that North Korea in the current environment has decided that they are no longer interested in diplomacy with the United States. Um, and that means that we're going to have to focus even more on deterrence. Two more questions, two more minutes. Um, tell me why it's important that we ratify the law of the sea treaty. Well, look, um, Senator Schatz, I, I will say this. This is a treaty that was negotiated in another time, right, in the 1960s. 
we abide, even though it's been signed but not I know ratified. we abide, yeah. I know, I know that. I know you understand <laughs> it. But it makes it hard for other countries that we contest with who say, hey, you know, you, haven't, you, you can't hold us accountable to something that you, is not your own law. So it's been a challenge for us. I think the reason that I'm primarily interested in it uh, is that it will provide a framework for how to think about um, areas in which China is contesting our uh, sovereign interpretations in the South China Sea and elsewhere. And I think that is uh, difficult for us because even our allies and partners say, hey, wait a second, you're holding China to account to something that you yourself haven't signed follow. up for. Yeah. yeah. So, so I, I'd love to see that possible. There's another renewed effort uh, uh, to go forward. I think we've gotten very close in the past. I'd love to get that over the finish line. I think it'll be challenging. I'm committed to it. I think we can get the votes um, because I think the politics has changed as we understand the urgent need for us to act uh, together collectively uh, on, on um, a competition with China. Um, final question, and it's a little technocratic, but how are you going to divide portfolio with uh, Mr. Verma? Or if you don't know yet, that's a fair enough answer. Yeah. So the, the one thing I will commit to you is uh, there are very few people that I, I hold in higher regard. Uh, than Rich Verma. Uh, he's a long-standing friend. I, I don't know if it's possible to be, to be more well-prepared. He's been a diplomat. He's a PhD. He's a business degree. He's been in the Air Force. He is an extraordinarily able uh, diplomat. He is primarily responsible for resources in the department, but my own view is that we're missing his skills on the field. And I want to make sure, working with Secretary uh, Blinken and the other key members, that, that he, we make sure that his real skills, not only in budgets and management, are seen in the field of play diplomatically. Yeah, it's a fair enough answer, but I, and I want you to sort of iterate this over time, but I just, I, I think it's important for the, frankly, committee members and their staffs to kind of know who to talk to about what, and, um, and so I'd like to sort that a little further. Uh, Senator you. Van Hollen. I'll take that out. You can go up here, just from here. Okay. Uh, thank, thank you, Senator Schatz. Um, Mr. Campbell, great to see you. Congratulations on you. your nomination. Uh, great to see members of your family, Lael, Coco. Um, thank you, Lael, for your service as well. And uh, let me say to you, um, Kurt, thank you for the great work you've been doing already uh, as part of the Biden administration at the National Security Council. Uh, with respect to East Asia and the Pacific, um, the work on, on China, um, Taiwan, the whole region, and uh, the important role you played supporting the president at the recent APAC conference uh, in, in San Francisco. Uh, I think your nomination to be Deputy Secretary at the State Department signals the importance the administration places uh, in that very important part of the world and in our our competition um, with the People's Republic of China. Uh, let me also associate myself with the words of some of my colleagues, including Senator Coons, with respect to the urgency of providing uh, military assistance uh, to Ukraine um, as they face continued assaults uh, from Putin, and that as others around the world, both friends and foe, watch to see uh, what we will do uh, in Ukraine. Now, as Deputy Secretary, of course, you'll have a much broader uh, policy uh, portfolio. Uh, and uh, I 
wanted to ask you a couple questions about uh, the situation uh, in the war between Israel uh, and Hamas. Uh, and I hadn't planned to get into this, but I understand it came up a little earlier uh, in some conversations. Uh, I just want to uh, quote from what John Finer said uh, on national television uh, recently when he was asked uh, about um, conditionality of assistance. Uh, and what John Finer said in response, and I quote, well, I guess that what I would say about that, Jake, referring to Jake Tapper, at this point is no assistance the United States provides to any country is unconditional. He went on to say it comes with the requirement that that aid be used consistent with international law, consistent with the law of armed conflict. Do you agree with the Deputy, the, the deputy National Security Advisor's comment? Yes, of course. And just to understand uh, your response to an earlier question, um, I, I take it to mean that you're not, you, that the administration, and as I understand the Biden administration's position, is the Biden administration is not asking for additional conditions on assistance to any of the countries uh, in this package, whether it be Ukraine, Israel, or countries in the Indo-Pacific. Is that correct? Senator, that is my understanding, but I will also say that there are uh, daily conversations at the very highest levels between um, uh, senior uh, officials in the U.S. government and Israel, our senior military, their senior military, about their military plans, and we have expressed very clear um, uh, views about the conduct of uh, operations more generally. I recognize that's different than sort of a, a legislative approach, but I, I will say um, that this uh, that we do have very clear interests in ensuring that this uh, conflict be conducted within what we would view as the humane rules of war. No, I very much appreciate that. I, I just had wanted to, to clarify that um, you, your response meant to adhere to what I understand the Biden administration position is, which is you're not asking for additional conditions at this time, recognizing what you just said. And I, I do think uh, it is very important that uh, the United States, as we support our friend Israel, that we insist uh, that measures be taken to better minimize civilian casualties. Um, as of today, there are over 16,000 people who have died in Gaza, uh, two-thirds of them women and children, and that we insist uh, that the Netanyahu government fully cooperate uh, with us in the provision of desperately needed uh, humanitarian assistance uh, there. And uh, speaking for myself, I think that the Biden administration could be doing even more uh, in that regard, and I know my, that view is shared with some of my colleagues. Uh, I realize that um, my time is up. I, I do want to really, in the remaining time, ask you uh, about uh, the issue of our economic engagement uh, in the Indo-Pacific, uh, and the administration has put forward a number of proposals um, that we've talked about in the past, IPEF being one. Uh, there are a number of others um, as well regarding critical minerals. Uh, So if you could just talk generally about yeah. the administration's strategy uh, on the economic uh, front with uh, 
countries there. Great. Thank you, Senator. I appreciate the question, and I also want to say how much I appreciated our conversation uh, in your office uh, the other day. It was uh, meaningful, and I, I, I took a lot from it. Um, I, I would say just uh, that we've already had a little bit of discussion about the importance of the American economic and commercial engagement in the Indo-Pacific, largest investor, huge trade flows. I think over the course of the next little while, there are a number of things that we need to work on even more intensively. Number one is to diversify our supply chains and make sure that the watchword that we use in doing so is uh, greater resilience working with allies and partners in particular and doing that in such a way is that we have confidence in a crisis that we have more than one source. Second is to take urgent steps on critical minerals and trace elements that are essential in the modern technology uh, and uh, all issues associated with long-life batteries and the like. I think the administration is taking steps in this direction. You will have seen that we have a, a, a new uh, agreement with Australia. We are exploring next steps with Indonesia. These are all things that are essential as going forward. IPEF, uh, I think, as we've discussed already, does provide some critical standards and other procedures that improve um, issues associated with uh, taxation, uh, matters related to uh, green uh, technologies and investments. These are important procedures, procedural steps um, that I think uh, smooth and give us greater confidence about uh, engaging uh, particular uh, countries. There is more work to be done to ensure that the United States is deeply embedded in the commerce and economies of the Indo-Pacific. My own personal view, Senator, is that this is something that requires a deeper conversation with the executive branch and with bipartisan members on the Hill. Uh, I think everyone on both sides of the aisle understands that the U.S. role here is essential, but it has to be designed carefully so that American workers, American jobs are not sacrificed in the process. Thank you. I appreciate that. I, I, I do want to um, just say in parting and not asking this as a, a question, just uh, something for you to, to take back. Um, a, a, a lot of us um, were, were surprised uh, and alarmed when the USTR uh, seemed to uh, roll back uh, the longstanding U.S. position uh, in favor of an open Internet um, because so many countries, especially authoritarian countries like China and Russia, try to put up uh, these walls um, to essentially uh, prevent um, good information from getting in and also to, to track their citizens and dissidents. So uh, if you could just uh, take back to your colleagues, uh, a lot of us were uh, very surprised, um, disappointed in that decision. Um, based on other uh, hearings we've had, uh, there was no consultation uh, by the USTR in that process with other parts of the government. Uh, and I, I, I hope it will be reversed. I think that our longstanding policy uh, was the right one, and I, I hope the administration will uh, undertake a course correction there. Thank you, Senator. I will take that back. Thank you. 
thank you, Senator Van Hollen. Uh, Mr. Campbell, thank you for your continued service to the country and, and for being open to all members on a bipartisan basis. The record for the hearing will remain open until the close of business tomorrow, Friday, December 8, uh, 2023. Please ensure that questions for the record are submitted no later than close of business tomorrow. This hearing is adjourned. Thank you.